Gateway, as we continue in worship, I would just invite you, uh, wherever you find yourself, uh, to stand with me this day for the reading of God's Word. Our, our teaching text today comes from Mark chapter 15, starting in verse 1, and this is what we read. Very early in the morning, the chief priests with the elders, the teachers of the law, and the whole Sanhedrin made their plans. So they bound Jesus, led him away, and handed him over to Pilate. Are you the king of the Jews? asked Pilate. You've said so, replied Jesus. The chief priests accused him of many things, and so again Pilate asked him, Aren't you going to answer? See how many things they're accusing you of? But Jesus still made no reply, and Pilate was amazed. And now it was the custom at the festival to release a prisoner whom the people requested. A man called Barabbas was in prison with the insurrectionists who had committed murder in the uprising. And the crowd came up and asked Pilate to do for them what he usually did. Do you want me to release to you the king of the Jews, asked Pilate, knowing it was out of the selfish interest that the chief priest had handed Jesus over to him. But the chief priest stirred up the crowd to have Pilate release Barabbas instead. What shall I do then with the one you call the king of the Jews, Pilate asked them. Crucify him, they shouted. Why? What crime has he committed? But they shouted all the louder, crucify him. And wanting to satisfy the crowd, Pilate released Barabbas to them. He had Jesus flogged and handed him over to be crucified. This is the word of the Lord. And you can, uh, you can have a seat. See, today brings us to one of the last remaining cultural taboos. Now, I could be totally wrong in saying that, but it feels like it. And that, that is the intersection of religion and politics. And many of us have been coached not to allow these things to mix, especially in public spaces. I'm even thinking even at family functions, you do not talk about religion and politics. Somehow everything else is okay, but not those two things. So I figured, why not do it in a sermon? Uh, no, this isn't to be cheeky or anything. I mean, simply put, as a community following Jesus, we desire to go where Jesus goes. And today, our, our teaching text brings us to the intersection of religion and politics. And so we're going to do this thing, and uh, Lord knows we need to pray. So if you would, just bow your hearts with me as we ask the Spirit to come and lead us into all truth through God's Word. So Father, Son, Holy Spirit, the community of love that we call God, we, we thank you that you are present to us. We thank you that you are the one in whom we live and move and have our being, that you, Jesus, hold all things together. We thank you that you, that you Jesus, like in you, we actually have all of the spiritual blessings in the heavenly places. You've, you've bestowed those on us who are hidden in Christ with God. We just ask in this time that you would fill us, that you would stand in my body, that you would speak with my mouth, that you would think with my mind. So come, Holy Spirit, we pray. Fill us with love and joy and peace. Amen. 
Lisi Camp, who's a professor and ethicist at Lipscomb University in Nashville, he describes the way of Jesus as an alternative politic. And maybe you've not heard the way of Jesus or Christianity described that way, but what that means is that Jesus, the way of Jesus, and anybody who follows Jesus is therefore intensely political. And whether you would describe yourself as such or not, Lee is trying to make this case. And what that means is that life with Jesus is is not just a privatized matter of the heart, a, a sort of, the cliche would be a transaction between you and God, where you are situated with him um, far off in eternity. It's, it's not just a privatized matter of the heart. It's not disconnected from family and community and public life writ large. And as Camp himself says, Christianity is not a religion, it's a politic. And by politic, what he means, and the definition I'll pick up, is a social body concerned with all aspects of communal life. A politic, therefore, wrestles with core questions like, how do we live together? Uh, How do we deal with money? How do we deal with enemies and violence? What about marriage and families? Or how about authority? How do we employ authority? Or how do we order authority? Not to mention, what do we do with our passions? Like, are they just biological functions? How do they play themselves out in the way that we live in the world? See, a politic is concerned what it looks like to, quote, live in a rightly ordered human community that engenders, brings about, cultivates, flourishing justice and the peace of God. Jesus himself bursts onto the scene in the gospel according to Mark, proclaiming the kingdom of God has come near. Repent and believe the good news. In other words, turn around and trust. Give your allegiance that the good news has arrived. A gospel is an intensely political statement. And I I understand Starting a teaching this way for some, even in a digital space, is like abhorrent. The word politic, let alone politically skewed or oriented content, kind of sends chills down your spine. It has no place in your imagination in the pulpit. Whereas for others, I say politic and you're more suspicious than anything else because you've experienced people in my position, pastors, using this place of power, let's just call it what it is, as a way to skew thoughts and situate our imaginations in one space over and against another. So you ask, well, how can a pastor offer any coherent words about our political landscape and not skew them? Well, let me just offer some ease. We can take a deep breath because I'm not trying to do any of those things. See, today is neither an attempt to make a political claim about the right or the left or the center. After all, Jesus was and is none of those things. More often than not, he upset everybody. (laughs) Like Jesus was an equal opportunity offender. So it's not that. Nor is today about me trying to organize the chaotic landscape that is our political theater. So once again, take a deep breath. I start with Jesus as an alternative politic and those who follow Jesus as such, I really go to this taboo space because this is where Mark brings us. 
And we see this in chapter 15, verse 1. Very early in the morning, the chief priests, the elders, the teachers of the law, the whole Sanhedrin made their plans. So they bound Jesus and led him away and handed him over to Pilate. And for the first time, we see Jesus facing the empire of the day in this scene. See, all along in the gospel according to Mark, Jesus has these interactions where he's healing people, he's teaching with authority, and in those spaces, he is trying to keep this moment at bay. I don't think he's necessarily avoiding that, but he's certainly trying to hold off an encounter with the empire. So take, for example, um, in Jesus's healings, he would perform this miraculous moment where the kingdom of God is breaking in and the healing power of the one true creator God is manifest through Jesus. Then he'll say things like, don't tell anybody. And we're left kind of going, why not? If, If you're saying that, the kingdom of God is at hand. Don't you want a bunch of people to know what the kingdom of God is like? Well, see, the challenge is is that there is another kingdom that is actually reigning in that physical space. And Jesus is coming in to invade that space with an altogether different type of kingdom. And so he's saying, tell no one. We even have this climactic moment with one of Peter's, or one of Jesus's closest followers, Peter, where Peter rightly recognizes Jesus as Israel's hope, and he calls him the Christ, the Messiah, which is this Hebrew term that designates Jesus. It's a title that designates Jesus as God's agent of restoration. And Peter rightly recognizes Jesus as such, and immediately after that, he turns to Peter and all the disciples and charges them intense not to tell anybody about them, strictly charges them, stay quiet. And now maybe it's because they actually don't know what they're talking about. I'm sure that's part of it. And maybe it's because he's not ready to have that encounter with the empire yet. The time is not come. And as we encountered last week, this, just the scene before, the secret is now out. Jesus boldly affirms before the religious council, who we see the Sanhedrin, that he is indeed God's agent of change and redemption. It's a claim that eventually leads to Jesus being bound to the political theater of his day. And I I say theater here intentionally. I I want you to notice that Jesus is now bound. He was not, and now he is. Now, Mark doesn't tell us if at his arrest he was bound. Maybe he was, maybe he wasn't, but now he is explicitly bound. But why bind a man who refuses to respond to violence with violence? Like, Jesus is not your typical revolutionary, is he? I mean, when, when Jesus encounters moments with swords, he says things like, those who live by the sword will die by the sword. So why buy a, bind a man who's responding to violence with nonviolence? Theater. I think in many ways, it's similar to when we see a man or woman put in handcuffs today. It symbolizes that a threat has been subdued. It's almost intuitive that that binding tells us that there was a threat. Therefore, to present Jesus bound is to present him as such, to present him as a threat. And not any ordinary threat, but a threat claiming to be God's agent of change. And when this threat comes to Pilate, Pilate asks Jesus this question in verse 2. He says, are you the king of the Jews? 
And this may feel like an, an odd question to you. I mean, the religious leaders hadn't pressed Jesus about his kingship. Uh, no, they were pressing Jesus about his messianic identity. They have this intensely religious concern. Uh, but here, Pilate shows us the implications of the Sanhedrin's interrogation. And to get at Pilate's question, let's just take a moment to briefly sketch out Jesus's political landscape. First, we need to note that in Jesus's day, Israel is an occupied space. That is, they are a space under Roman control. They're colonized by Rome. See, Rome has the statement, Pax Romana, the peace of Rome. Well, the peace of Rome came at the edge of a sword. And so if you disagreed with their form of peace, you died. So Israel is under the peace of Rome. They are occupied. And like many of Israel's neighbors, they too were suffering under the heavy tax burdens to build up the empire. There's the the cultivation of life in the capital city of Rome. There's the aqueducts. There's all of the like trades and the trade routes and commerce, the roads. All of that requires money from these colonies. So they're under the, the heavy tax burden and then the strict enforcement at the edge of a sword. In fact, that's why we find Pilate in the scene that we're in. See, Pilate is in Jerusalem at the time of Passover. And and normally this isn't where he is. Normally he's up on the Mediterranean coast, he's in Caesarea. But when great pilgrimage festivals were taking place, like the Passover, like, like a pilgrimage festival that draws hundreds of thousands of Hebrews into the capital city, Pilate knows he needs to be there. Pilate shows up for those moments. And so Pilate, and Pilate doesn't just like, come in and get an Airbnb or something like that. No, Pilate comes with a show of military force. He rides in like a conquering warlord on a stallion, soldiers in tow, a show of force to say, you all can have your little festival, but if anything gets out of line, we will stomp you out. Because if you get power through acts of violence, you have to keep it through acts of violence. By no means does that political landscape map one-to-one onto our own, lots of similarities, but this is a historical moment that's defined by things like emperors and puppet kings and theocracies, which have these supposedly divinely appointed rulers, and that's not really our context, is it? (laughs) We live in a democracy, and um, it's a little bit different today. Okay, it's a lot different. But much like our own context, there were various responses to power in Jesus's day. Some revolt, some retreat, some get close to power with the hope of, um, you know, getting stuff done, efficiency, I don't know. Uh, Mark, he identifies how those responses go. He identifies them throughout the narrative. We see that there's teachers of the law, there's scribes, zealots, Pharisees, Sadducees. And these last two, the Pharisees and the Sadducees, they're illustrative because they dominated the religious and political life for the people of Israel. And the Pharisees, they're more rural and conservative in their theological makeup. Uh, And as far as we can tell, they maintained this rigorous devotion to God's word. 
Jesus himself told his disciples to listen to their teachings. Now, in the same breath, he also said to not live as they live because the reality is is that the Pharisees, though they knew the letter of the law, they had lost the heart of God. So they had all this external performance that was far from the heart of God because the poor were neglected in their midst. (laughs) So they would tithe mint and cumin. They would have these dramatic shows of prayer in public spaces, and yet the devotion of their hearts was really just to themselves, not to God. And when you look at the Sadducees, they look much more progressive. And that that term fits loosely. It's like an awkward t-shirt. I think it's helpful to bridge a historical gap because when you look at the Sadducees, you see they're urban, they're wealthy, they're educated. Uh, They are people who are very close to power. What's interesting, though, is that they have, as leaders, religious leaders in Israel, they've rejected most of the Hebrew Bible. They only hold to the first five books, Genesis to Deuteronomy, what they know as the Torah. And what that means is they have a really narrow worldview, theologically speaking. So there's no space for spiritual beings, no angels, no demons, even up to the point where there's no space for the resurrection, life after the life after death. Like that's not in their worldview. And even though they're a theological majority, they hold on to huge swaths of cultural power by cozying up to Rome. And it's striking to note how diligent Mark is to point out, like back in verse 1, that all of Israel's religious leaders conspired together. He's redundant in that point. The, the scribes, the teachers, the, like all of them, the Sanhedrin. So he basically unpacks who the Sanhedrin is. All of them have conspired against Jesus. And I take the time to sketch this out because groups like the Pharisees and the Sadducees had the same vitriol then for one another that many people on the right and the left have for one another today. It's the same level of hostility, this utter disdain and division, except when it came to Jesus. When it came to Jesus, they came together to see him handed over to Rome. The gospel according to John lets us in on a little uh, secret, not really a secret, lets us in to know that they don't have the authority to put Jesus to death, but they do know who does. And so they conspire together to hand him over to Rome. As the saying goes, the enemy of my enemy is my friend. And it's telling, isn't it, that Jesus doesn't fit into any of these groups? Jesus's allegiance is marked by those first words. It is to the kingdom of God and to the God of that kingdom, Yahweh, and none other. In our language, we would say that Jesus isn't right. He isn't left. He isn't center. And it makes me wonder if we would do well to say the same. I guess that's a talk for another time. In the meantime, we see that there's no doubt and that Pilate would be well aware of the division among the groups. He is, after all, the, the governor overseeing that region. He's responsible for whether or not like riots break out in that place. So he knows the division. He knows the hostility. And for him, a threat powerful enough to unite those on the right and the left must be taken seriously. And therefore, I think he asks this question out of that. Are you the king of the Jews? And Jesus' response at the end of verse 2 is fascinating. He says, you have said so. See, Jesus neither says yes, nor does he say no. He rides the fence. And the ambiguity of Jesus' response, as uncomfortable as it is, 
allows Pilate to say more about him than the high priest would, or even what Jesus has said about himself all along. This is what I mean. If you recall in the previous scene, the high priest Caiaphas is getting frustrated by Jesus' silence and how these false accusations aren't like adding up. And so the high priest stands up and asks Jesus with this statement question, you are, you are the Messiah, the son of the blessed one? To which Jesus like dramatically and enthusiastically affirms. Now he does give some definition to the term, what he, Jesus means by Messiah, but he affirms that. Now that affirmation lands him accused of blasphemy and bound before Pilate. And then when Pilate takes up that charge of blasphemy, that messianic claim, a claim that they took, that that is the Sanhedrin took for Jesus to be claiming to be God, when, when Pilate takes up that charge against Jesus, this accusation and translates it into his world, the Roman world, Jesus is not just a religious threat as the high priests frame him. Jesus is a political threat. Jesus is king. And when Jesus is asked who he is, he simply affirms his identity. This is so fascinating. See, it, previously in Mark 13, 11, um, we actually, the see Jesus say these words, whenever you are arrested and brought to trial, do not worry beforehand about what to say. Just say whatever is given you at the time, for it is not you speaking, but the Holy Spirit. And maybe you've allowed your mind to to run amok in those words of Jesus. And I certainly have. I've had ample time to do that this week. And I was thinking, what would I say if my allegiance to Jesus landed me accused and before a court or in a trial of some sort? I'd like to think that I would have some sort of epic moment like the first Christian martyr Stephen in the Acts of the Apostles. Stephen in this moment, he like, it's It's this moment where he replays the story of the people of Israel and God's faithfulness ultimately fulfilled in the person of Jesus, who they killed, who you crucified. It's like like an ultimate drop the mic moment and then they stone him. Uh, I imagine that I would have some moment like that, but then I come to our text and I see the arrest of Jesus. I see the trial of Jesus and I see something different. The Spirit seems to be affirming that Jesus is God's agent of restoration and more. Jesus is king, but but not king as like king of Israel or king of Rome as the Israelites or the Romans define. No, for Mark, it's not an accident that we see Jesus as this messianic king. And it's no accident that Jesus doesn't have some elaborate speech. He simply affirms who he is. And just listen to how the scene unfolds, picking up in verse 3. And the chief priest accused him of many things. So again, Pilate asked him, aren't you going to answer? See how many things they're accusing you of? But Jesus still made no reply. And Pilate was amazed. See, for myself and for my generation, and I think for most Americans, whether you're following Jesus or not, this inaction is uncomfortable. It almost hurts. 
If this were if this were a movie and I was at home in the privacy of my home and I was watching this, I would be yelling at the TV. I would be saying, say something, say anything, defend yourself. Yes, I, I am that person. If uh, if it wasn't a pandemic and there were movie theaters, I would be that guy. Um, and and in my mind, this is that's what's happening. I'm saying, say something, Jesus, defend yourself. But that's the exact opposite of what Jesus does. He vaguely affirms but doesn't confirm Pilate's question. And then he absorbs into himself all of the other accusations. And while there's many who would frame this as as Jesus's passivity or weakness or inaction, I actually believe this is increasingly to be the call of the church in the day in which we live, to identify with Jesus in his silence. See, this doesn't mean we say nothing. See, for Jesus, silence speaks the loudest. For in his silence, he absorbs the offense. He absorbs the abuse. He absorbs the slander. He absorbs the physical assault. And so too was we. And just as he did not respond to violence with violence, so too must we. And notice that that silence is not just the absence of words. No, Jesus speaks the truth simply, plainly, in love. He affirms his identity and then says nothing. Silence doesn't mean that you stand for nothing. I mean, just for a moment, let's just just go here. Um, It's quite the opposite. If you think about the church, like the Orthodox church, this is like, I, I stand firm in all core Orthodox doctrines. This is not a progressive thing by any means. Like the church stands for the world. God so loved the world. Yes, like make disciples of all nations. The word there is ethne, like God has a heart for the world. So the church has a heart for the world. The the church stands for the country, not just one region, north, south, east, or west, because there are people everywhere. And where there are people, God is for those people. So we stand for the whole of the country. And in turn, we stand for all economic groups. And in the way of Jesus, we especially stand in solidarity with the poor. And just to to lean in there, if if this is an area where you would say, actually, I question that, it it begs another question of, have you heard Jesus? <laughs> this is where Jesus situates himself. So of course the church stands in solidarity with the poor. And more, the, the church is for all ethnicities, not just the majority ethnicity or the one that you identify with, but all ethnicities. Just go read the end of Revelation. And in turn, the church stands with immigrants and refugees. And regardless of what your like policy positions are on immigration, the people of God were at once foreigners in a strange land. And so they love those who are now foreigners in the land they reside. The church is for women. I mean, I would think at this point in 2021, this, this doesn't need to be said, but it does. Women, you are a gift to our church. You are a gift to the church. Your voice is needed, desired, wanted. We are for religious freedom. See, this is actually a Christian ideal that we don't want just freedom for ourselves. This comes from the idea of loving our neighbor as we would love ourselves. The church is for anti-discrimination and human dignity and, not but, 
And at the same time, the sanctity of human sexuality, the sanctity of gender, the sanctity of marriage. See, the church is for the unborn. Life from from the womb to the tomb, but especially the unborn. The, The church is for the environment. If you think about, like, this is what we were given. This is what we were called to see flourish and prosper. The earth is God's, not ours. And as those who bear God's image, we are called, we are charged to care for it, not to ruin and destroy it. The church is for nonviolence and enemy love. This list could go on and on and on. You see, to stand with Jesus in silence isn't to be inactive. It is to stand for so much. Because to stand with Jesus is to stand with truth. And like Jesus, we stand for truth in the posture of love. See, see, love doesn't go out in a crusade. We don't crusade for truth. We don't seek power and influence to establish truth. Rather, with Jesus, we stand unoffendable in the wake of truth. And that doesn't mean it is easy or it doesn't hurt, but rather it means that we can absorb into ourselves, like our Lord, the offense of others. Because where there is truth, and that is simply what corresponds to reality, not the ones that we manufacture, but the one that extends from the life and teaching of Jesus, where there is truth, we stand in love with Jesus. And like our Lord, where there's evil, in love and humility, we stand ready to receive its assault so that others may flourish. Now, I don't stand here as one who does this well or perfectly or completely, but I do stand here as one who desires this, who wants to mature in these things. I want this for our church. I want this for the city of Des Moines. I want this for the state of Iowa. I want this for our whole, like we want this because this is what Jesus wants. But Jesus, and in turn you and me, can only do this if we know who and whose we are. See, Jesus is the beloved of God. And in Christ, what is true of the Son is true of you and is true of me. And I think that it is that secure position in the Father's love. I think it is that that amazes Pilate. Because unless Jesus is secure in the Father's love, how could he remain silent? But because he is secure, he can. And Pilate is amazed. Verse 6, we pick up again. Now, it was the custom at the festival to release a prisoner whom the people requested. A man called Barabbas was in prison, you know, with the insurrectionists who had committed murder in the uprising. Of course, Mark. And now the crowd came up and asked Pilate to do for them what he usually did. And he asks, do you want me to release to you the king of the Jews? Ultimately, they say no. And no doubt in this moment, we see it there, like Pilate sees the misshapen contours of the Sanhedrin's trial. He sees it's a mock trial. He sees that they're motivated by envy, a thing that the New Testament describes as misshaping our hearts. It has this demonic influence. So they're motivated by envy. They turn the crowd, not to release the king of the Jews, but to release Barabbas. And so when Pilate turns to them, I'm thinking maybe with hopeful expectation that they would receive the king of the Jews, Jesus of Nazareth. They don't. Instead, they call for Barabbas. 
What's so interesting about Barabbas is Barabbas is this Aramaic name and in the whole of the gospel according to Mark, every time that he uh, makes a statement in Aramaic, you think of this uh, Talitha Kumi in Mark 5 where a little girl arrives. Like every time there's an Aramaic phrase or statement, like Mark translates it for us. But here in Mark 15, he breaks his pattern. And anytime something like that happens at a literary level, it calls our attention. We say, whoa, whoa, what's going on? And so we just have to ask, what's going on? And, and making a note of this in a little commentary, Tim Gombas, a biblical scholar, he, he asks this, he says this, is, or he says this, this is a provocation to Mark's audience for them to ask, what's unique about Barabbas? A name which literally means son of the father. In other words, what's significant? What's the contrast between Jesus of Nazareth, who we know the father affirms as his beloved son and the man whose name literally means son of the father. See, to put it this way, might as well ask, which Jesus do you want? That's the question in front of the crowd. And in one sense, that's the question before you and me. See, Tom Skinner, who some know as the prophet of Harlem, a man I, I first heard of in a sermon by Tim Keller, uh, he preached at an Urbana conference, which is uh, through InterVarsity, and back in 1970, and in this sermon, he concludes in our text. In that sermon, he said this, because he said it better than I ever will. He said, Pilate stands out before the Jews with these two prisoners, potential radicals. Now I'm going to release one of them to you and I want you to tell me which one you want. Over here, I've got Barabbas and incidentally Barabbas' name was Jesus, Jesus Barabbas. And so you've got two Jesuses on your hands. So it's not a question as to whether there's going to be a revolution. It's a question of which one. And Pilate went on. Over here, you've got Barabbas. Barabbas has been burning the system down, killing people. Do you want him? Or over here, I've got Jesus, who claims to be the Son of God. I've interrogated him and can't find anything wrong with him other than the fact that some dead people are alive because of him, some blind people have seen, some deaf people are hearing, and by the way, he did feed a few thousand people with a welfare giveaway program. But other than that, I can't find anything wrong with him. Now, which one do you want, Jesus or Barabbas? And we know what they chose. They rejected Jesus to get a different Jesus. And in the face of that rejection, Pilate asks this in verse 12, what shall I do then with the one you call the king of the Jews? Crucify him. Why, what has he done? Crucify him. And to satisfy the crowd, he does so. He hands him over. He flogs him, and he's led to be crucified. This is how Skinner then responds. They, speaking of Pilate and the Romans, they didn't realize that in nailing Jesus to the cross, they were putting up on that cross the sinful nature of all humanity. I was told that as Christ was nailed to the cross, it was more than just a political radical dying. He was God's answer to the human dilemma. On that cross, Christ was bearing in his, 
in his own body my sin, and he was proclaiming my liberation at the cross. And on that cross, he shed his blood to cleanse me of all my sin, to set me free. See, the politic of Jesus, it is about enemy love. Love that while hanging on a cross says things like, Father, forgive them for they know not what they do. You see, in the politic of Jesus, we ask questions like, how how do we live together? How do we deal with money? How How do we deal with enemies and violence and what about our marriage and authority and our passions, the appetites of my biology? What do, what do I do with this? How do I order my life? And Jesus would say, love. And it seems so basic. It seems like really after all of this, this is, this is the politic of Jesus is love. Yeah. So I think at the, at the core of maturity in the life of Jesus is this movement from fear to love. And, and this is why we encounter things in the scriptures that perfect love is the reality that casts out fear. And fear, in essence, is this response for control. And so at a basic level, like the invitation of Jesus here is, is to say that we don't have control. It's the relinquishing of the illusion of control and entrusting ourselves to God. And at the end, in that place of trust, we can actually move toward our enemy with love. And again, I don't stand here as one who's saying like, I figured out how to do this. I harbor bitterness and resentment and frustration, even with those who are brothers and sisters in Christ. And more often than not, it it is that because those are the people I spend so much time with. And I'm so quick, I'm so quick to move toward control from a place of fear, fear I'll be rejected, fear I'll be abandoned. And so instead, I reject them before they reject me. I abandon them before they'll abandon me. And I I maintain some semblance of control. And And in the place of that, there's chaos relationally, interpersonally, and it spills out. But when I look at Jesus, I don't just see one who came who came to die for my sins, I see one who actually stood in my place, who absorbed in himself death so that I would never have to face it. That is the love of enemy. See, the politic of Jesus is love, which is expansive. It's expansive in our hearts and it's expansive in our communities. This is what it looks like for the inbreaking of the kingdom of God is that we would lay our lives down in love for one another. See, the the simple invitation I have for us today, and maybe it feels super, super elementary, is just to write down who we do not want to love. And then ask these questions. How do I live with that person? What Does my money have to do anything with them? Are they an enemy? Have I done violence to them, verbally or otherwise? Am I in authority over them? Are they my spouse, my partner? Are they in my family? What do I do there? And in all those things, as, as you, as questions, as the Spirit of God is with you, walking through those questions, that you submit those over to God in trust.
So let's go into that. Let's move with Jesus into this taboo space to see that it's actually not that scary because there we stand in the love of the Father. Let's pray. Jesus, we really want to go where you have gone, where you are. And the reality is, is that can't frighten us, that can cause us to shrink back, cause us to seek out control. Um, so Lord, forgive us when we do. Give us the courage to repent and trust that you indeed are the good news. Not that you just bring the good news, but that you are the good news, Jesus. So we ask that you would search us, that you would search our hearts. And not from a place of condemnation, but a place of conviction and trust and love and humility that we would turn toward you and we would turn toward one another so we could see this world start to look more like your love breaking out. It is chaotic and it will be until you come and yet these pockets of the brilliance of the glory of God can break out in and through your church. So come Holy Spirit, we pray, move with power and compassion through us. Amen.